Well, we're week four in our Advent series, and uh, we begin today with uh, just our introductory slide that tells you our overall theme, surpassing uh, our imagination. And I take my inspiration from Ephesians chapter 3, where it tells us that God is able to do above all that we imagine, think, ask, anything. God is able, and we delight in that. And that inspired me to sort of, as I read through the Advent text, to come up with four themes, that, uh, five themes actually, for our Advent series beyond our grandest, uh, grandest expectations, our fairest justice, our highest joys, today our wildest dreams, and then Christmas Eve, our greatest news. And just for those who are interesting, interested, uh, these messages are online on our, on our webpage, but also the slides I'm using are, all, are there as well in case you want to go back and look at things that I might have said. But today we're focused on beyond our wildest dreams, and the sense of that is fostering hearts that really listen to God, listening hearts. They're able to, to focus on God. I uh, put here a slide that's a, f- a dream fulfilled. And uh, just to, s- to correlate that with my message, if you can see, that's Christian Lyon, who graduated on Thursday night uh, from Riverside Sheriff's Academy. He's back here at the booth. And uh, Christian, congratulations. God bless you. A uh, great milestone in your life. And Dreams are fulfilled, right? A lot of types of dreams are happening around us. Some are sleep dreams, but some are just uh, uh, things we're working toward. And so congratulations to you. A number of years ago, uh, well, year 2000, most people here remember the year 2000, right? Uh, it was an interesting year. Uh, I was sort of, a, as a historian, said, this is really not a significant year because th- our year that we follow and we name is really a, an artificial construct. It's even a mistake because Jesus actually was born 4 to 6 B.C. So to say that 2000 A.D. in the year of the Lord is actually 4 to 6 years off in accuracy. So I knew as we approached the year 2000, it was sort of a a false concept. But we know the year, if you read back in history, the year 1000 was really quite dramatic as the year 2000 was. And some people were saying Jesus is coming back. Uh, in the year 2000, or some other apocalyptic event is going to take place in the year 2000, and it might not even be religious, it's just going to be an apocalyptic disaster coming upon the whole earth. And a lot of other people were very concerned about computers and the internet because it wasn't uh, geared to the year 2000, it was the year 19 that was in there, and so uh, computers are going to crash, banks, industry, it's all going to fall and collapse, and 2000 came, 2000 went, no big deal, right? (laughs) All the anxiety basically over little or nothing. At the same time the year 2000 came, I was under a lot of duress and I was having my own anxieties. Uh, In 1989, I'd returned to graduate school. I loved uh, teaching and uh, I was at a Bible college before that. And I wanted to escape the fundamental past that I was a part of and go back to grad school and earn my PhD in history. And so I went to Miami University of Ohio, entered their program. I already had my Master of Divinity, but they said it's not a, 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 a historical degree, so you've got to get a second master's and then work on your PhD. So I entered the program and endured through all that process. And by the year uh, 1994, I had finished my MA, second master's. I'd finished all my coursework for the PhD, and I was in a status called ABD. Now, those of you who know, that is all but dissertation. Everything's done but your dissertation. For those of us and my colleagues, it was all but dead. <laughs> we were tired, we were exhausted, and we had this enormous paper to write of you know, several hundred pages. And so we were uh, at that point of stress, and so I was facing that. At the same time, uh, 
1994, we discovered in our church a hidden sin that one family had sort of as a tangled type of sin that was sex, uh, childhood sexual abuse, and it had major implications for our entire church. And so we discovered that. We had to walk through that journey. It took years, basically, of that elephant in the, in the room always being there as we were working through that issue. At the same time, my wife and I had a passion for adopting children, and so we entered in a, a foster-to-adopt program, brought two children into our home who came from a very bad background. Their parents were very difficult people, and so we entered a very difficult scenario there. So by the time we en reached the end of the 90s, we were exhausted. <laughs> we, we'd been through our foster process. We'd been through uh, the childhood sex abuse issue in the church. We'd been through a lot of things. And needless to say, my dissertation was not done. And I was feeling a lot of stress related to that. And it was time really for us to have a fresh start. And so I had applied for a number of positions. And the position I got was uh, going to Palm Beach Atlantic University uh, to work there at the university. And I was still ABD'd. And so uh, they recognized my skills and abilities. And, and they also recognized I was somewhat naive. And uh, institutions like Palm Beach Atlantic are wise because what they do is they think if they can give you several titles, they can get a whole lot more work out of you, right? Make sense? So I was associate dean of the, of the School of Ministry. I was the campus ministries director, so I was head of all the programs around the college that ministered to students and missions and everything else. And I was also a four-nights professor, so I taught a four-course four load out of what the normal professor would have nine. I had four, and I was doing those other administrative tasks. And so it wasn't really a formula for finishing up my dissertation. I have the little formula up there, five, one, no, I don't. It's on the next slide. Uh, no, right, right there. 511. 511 means this. Uh, I had five years to finish my dissertation. From 1994 to 1999, I was supposed to have it done. It wasn't done. I went to the university and begged them, and they gave me a one-year extension. And they said, get it done. I went to them again, <laughs> not having my dissertation done, and said, please, give me another year to finish this dissertation. And they said this. If you do not finish your dissertation this year, it's over. You've lost it. You've lost your program. You've lost your degree. And no dissertation, no PhD, no job in higher education. It's over. It's complete. It's done. I was feeling a little bit of stress <laughs> as I was fulfilling those other roles at the same time. And while I was going through that stress, I was having two recurring dreams over and over again. The first one was I would, and they both related to graduation at Miami, and I was anticipating my graduation. The first one, I, I would walk up to the platform in my regalia, you know, wanting to get my hood and get my diploma, and I walk up and I start to ascend the stairs, and there's a man standing at the top of the stairs who's very austere. He's, uh, he's got silver hair, he's uh, a strong individual, and he's standing there saying, with shaking his finger saying, no, <laughs> no, you cannot have your diploma. And I'm there, <sighs> And it's like I'm working toward this, and I would wake up with just, you know, sweat and uh, frantic and uh, wondering, oh, what am I going to do? And then I couldn't go back to sleep because I'm thinking about writing my dissertation. The second one was uh, also about graduation. I would get up on the platform. I made it the platform, and they gave me my diploma, and I tuck it under my arm. And have you ever seen the movie uh, Chariots of Fire, Eric Liddell? Eric uh, is this famous runner, and I would tuck the diploma under my arm and start running like the wind. <sighs> And I'm just cruising. And I told Debbie my dream, and she says, well, where are you running to? And I said, 
is not where I'm running to, it's where I'm running from. <laughs> I need to get away from this life and move on and get moving with life. And dreams were just part of all the things that were going on inside of me. Our message today is beyond our wildest dreams. And dreams are kind of fascinating things that take place in our lives. If you go look at WebMD, which is the most authoritative source in the world, right? <laughs> okay, it tells you that dreams are images and stories that our minds create while we're sleeping, which is a pretty fair uh, rendition of what they are. Uh, sometimes they're happy, sometimes they're sad, sometimes they're confusing, sometimes they're very rational and straightforward. Most of the time they happen when we're in rapid eye movement stage of sleep, when our minds are most active. And scholars tell us that you probably dream four to six times a night, and you don't even know it. You don't remember most of them, right? I don't remember most of my dreams. The worst kind of dreams are nightmares, right? When they're really bad, they're terror dreams. Happen to children, happen to adults. A lot of stress, a lot of conflict, a lot of fear, trauma, sometimes emotional problems. Sometimes even illness or medications can cause these nightmares to set in. There are some uh, ideas that if you do have recurring nightmares, it's very wise for you to give attention to them because sometimes they might reveal something about what's going on in your inner person. And if you're having trouble resolving them, it might be wise to approach a counselor or somebody, a mental health uh, counselor who can help you work through them because uh, there's times when they're telling you something from your body or from your mind or your psyche or even your spirit that God is telling you. So be aware of that. Why do we dream? Uh, some scholars say there's no reason. You just have dreams. Uh, others say we need dreams. We need them to work out our emotions and our physical health and our mental issues. There was even a study done uh, on people where they went to sleep, and as soon as they entered dream phase, they were woken up. They, were no, they weren't allowed to dream. And these people, as a test group, had more, more tension, more anxiety, more depression, more hard time concentrating, lack of coordination, weight gain and a tendency to hallucinate than their other peers who were allowed to dream. So dreams somehow do things for us as we go through our process. Some sci scientists say that uh, dreams uh, help us process our emotions, integrate our memories, or solve problems. Uh, one of my favorite memories of dreams for me is I was in uh, college and I was taking a minor in mathematics and I had several very complex math courses. And one night I was trying to solve a problem. It was due the next day. And there was something about that problem I couldn't finish. It was at the end of the problem. There were certain few configurations that I just could not get. And I went to bed frustrated with that on my mind. And I lay down, fell asleep. In the middle of the night, I just sat up with a bolt. I jumped off my top bunk, ran over to my desk, wrote down some figures, stepped back up onto the, the heater, hopped into the top bunk, and went back to sleep. When I get up in the morning, I went over to it, and it was exactly right. I'd solved my problem in the middle of my sleep. I didn't even know. I didn't even know it was right until the next morning. So I was like, wow, that's kind of cool, right? Uh, so we solve problems. Sometimes there are windows into our subconscious desires, thoughts, and motivations. Freud had the idea that we have a lot of things that aren't accepted in society, and so we push them down, and they come out in our sleep with bad dreams, sometimes even... Uh, dreams that we, we might consider immoral or things of that nature or have expressing emotions that we would say aren't, aren't acceptable. And I want to give a little bit of a pastoral response to that because I think there are times we have dreams that we would say, man, I feel guilty about that. I feel embarrassed. I wouldn't share that dream with anybody. Uh, I remember reading a, a set of documents. It's called the Philokalia. If you can find it on, on Amazon, it's called the, it means the lover of good or lover of the beautiful. And th it was written by various 
spiritual masters over the, in the Eastern Orthodox Church from around the 5th century all the way to the 15th century. Just advice to people on how to be spiritual, how to grow in their spirituality, especially for monks. It was sort of an insider document. And it gave instruction on how to, how to just be spiritual you know, in terms of being uh, a, a good monk, <laughs> I guess, in those days. And there's one story in there about a young monk who was having bad dreams, I think sexual dreams. He felt very guilty and concerned about it. He felt like he wasn't worthy to be a monk. And so he went to his confessor, and he sat down with him and said, I've had these dreams. I confess them to you. I need to be put out of the monastery. I need to be uh, thrown away because I'm just no good. I can't do this life. And the older monk stopped him and said, hold it. He said, all you've learned is that you, ha you are not completely sanctified yet. You still have work to do. If you feel guilty about what you've done, then confess it to God. And, uh, and don't act upon your dream. Don't act out upon it. Just confess it to God and move on with your life. Don't let that guilt, don't let that burden, don't let that uh, frustration drive you down and let Satan get a foothold in your life because you're not forgiving yourself. And I think that was such great pastoral advice to just confess it, let it go, don't act upon it, and just move on. Forgive yourself. And uh, there's times when you might even help to have a, an accountability partner to help you work through some of those things and a confessor that you might share those things with. But move on. Forgive yourself and keep moving toward forward in your sanctification process. Francis McNutt is a well-known uh, teacher of the church. He really deals with a lot with... Uh, is not advancing. There we go. Uh, he had an article called Praying About Your Dreams or Praying for Your Dreams. And he gave three uh, basic exhortations for those of you who are concerned about your dreams. Pray, number one, for protection. When you go to bed, pray that God would protect you. Pray that God would protect your mind, that he would keep your mind focused on things that are good. And that anything you may have uh, picked up during the day of images and thoughts or angry situations or maybe an offense or whatever, Pray for protection and pray confession regarding that. So protection, number one, pray for cleansing. Cleansing from some of those thoughts you had in the day, maybe some of the angry situations you were in, maybe a lack of forgiveness or whatever. Pray that God would cleanse you from those things that they don't dominate your mind as you go into your sleep. In the morning, if you've had some thoughts that you feel like are inappropriate or dreams or images that you feel are inappropriate, just confess that to God and move on. And then lastly, pray for wisdom and guidance. Because sometimes, just sometimes, God uses dreams, not every dream, to guide and direct his people. And so pray that God's love would flow through your thoughts. And his last statement here, if we dream, fill our dreams with your love. Give us deep sleep and let us awake in the morning refreshed and perhaps with vision and understanding and discernment about how we move forward uh, with our lives. This morning, we're going to focus on dreams, and we're going to go far beyond uh, uh, just regular dreams, but talking about how God speaks to us. Realize that God is not limited to how he speaks to us. He doesn't have to speak through a person. He doesn't have to speak audibly from heaven. He's spoken so many different ways all the way through history. Uh, he speaks through visions when we're awake. He speaks through dreams when we're asleep. He speaks through donkeys when we're stubborn. <laughs> if you know the story of Balaam, he can do it all. And I love this passage in Hebrews where it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, you know, many different ways, many different times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. He has manifold ways in which he speaks to us. In manifold times, he's done this. Later on in chapter 2, he tells us that 
God sometimes, with the messages he speaks to us, does it with signs and wonders. It says that he used those signs and wonders to confirm the messages by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And that he will confirm those messages, make them real in our hearts, and make us realize that truly was something from God himself. Our God is not limited in when and how he speaks. And our lectionary text that we read this morning reveal that. You have the sign that God gave to Ahaz, you have a dream that God gave to Joseph, and you also have all the prophecies that God gave to the prophets about how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Son of David, was coming into the world and taking upon himself human flesh. And what you have in our, sto- our uh, lectionary text this morning are two stories, one about the sign of Ahaz and one about the, s- the dream of Joseph that I want to weave together to analyze a little bit about their context, a little bit about their content, a little bit about the conclusions you can draw from them to help instruct us on how we can approach God and how we can listen to God well from our dreams and from other ways that God may speak. So the sign of Ahaz, the context. I think I shared with you last week or so that Ahaz was a guy that, and I've spoken from Isaiah quite a bit, Ahaz was a guy that was king of Judah, and he was not a godly man. He was one of those men that the, the chronicler would say, this one did not do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't walk in faith. He wasn't a person who pleased God in, in a real sense. And uh, in that rebellion that he had against God, God came to him one last time in Isaiah chapter 7 and said, I want, I want you just to ask for a sign. I want to prove to you that I am your God, the God of Judah, and that I am worthy to be trusted to protect you, to defend you, to guide you, to help you and bless you against all your enemies. And Ahaz, in his rebellious heart, he's already made up his mind. He's not responding uh, well to God's kindness and benevolence in that offer. He just said, oh, no. He speaks to Isaiah, I won't test the Lord. And that wasn't something sincere or pious. That was actually the rebellion of his heart. He was saying, no, don't bother God. I've got my mind made up. I don't need you. I don't need you to do anything. You're nothing to me. I've got my devising. And what he had a, had a device in his mind was he was going to, he was having trouble with the king of Israel and Samaria and also the king of Syria. And they were coming up against him and causing him all kinds of problems and, and he feared being overthrown by them. His plan was, I'm going to make a pact with the king of Assyria and this king of Assyria is going to help me defeat my enemies, my local enemies, and then we're going to be sort of co-rulers or something like that. Well, that's foolish because Assyrian, Assyria was not a, a country that or didn't have kings who would say, oh, yeah, you're my equal. <laughs> once, once they defeated uh, Ahaz's enemies, Ahaz would just become a puppet. And so God was offering, really, Ahaz the opportunity to, to avoid that situation. But here he was moving into that, feigning uh, uh, humility and moving on in his own decision. And so what God decides to do in light of that is to go ahead and give Ahaz a, a sign anyway. If you won't ask for it, I'm going to give you one. And the sign was one that uh, was, had an immediate sense to him, but it was also very much a sign of judgment, that Assyria was coming. And Assyria, before uh, this child who's born, and the, 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 actually the prophecy is about a young woman conceiving a child, and when that child gets to the point where it's, it, it eats curd and whey and uh, is, knows the choose between good and evil, then the two enemies that you have will be defeated. But they're going to be defeated by Assyria, and you're going to be a puppet king. And so it was a warning. It was a, it was a vision that, and sign that really Ahaz didn't really want to have. What's fascinating about this is that you have a, 
prophecy given that has a meaning for the time, but it also has a meaning for the future. The Hebrew word there for a virgin, when it says a virgin shall conceive, it isn't, always, it isn't always meant to be a virgin as far as a woman who's never had sexual relations. What it is is just basically a young maiden. And if you watch the passage moving into Isaiah chapter 8, you find out that the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy was that Isaiah and his wife had a child. And that child, before that child could say, my mother, my father, Assyria was at the door defeating the enemies of, his, of, of Judah. And so it was a fulfillment of that. And so as Ahaz watched that happen, he could say, wow, God has acted. God has done what he promised. And Isaiah's wife was not a virgin when she conceived. So you have what, what's open in that passage is, yes, it could be a virgin, but it also could be a young woman who may be a young woman who gives birth. And that's the example of Isaiah and his wife. What's fascinating is you move through time, you get to the Greek translation of this passage, the Septuagint. It was produced around 300 to 200 B.C., before Christ. They chose to translate this passage with a Greek word, uh, Parthenos, which is, means only a virgin. It, it, it doesn't mean just a young woman. It, it's specifically a woman who is a virgin. And so somehow there was this movement towards a fulfillment that, hey, a virgin is going to conceive. It's going to be a miraculous birth. And when you get to uh, Matthew's writing, the word he uses is the word from the Septuagint, the virgin shall be conceived, and it's a miracle. It's a sign before, but when you get to the New Testament, 700 years later, it's a miracle. And it's a fascinating uh, uh, way that this unfolds in time. So let me share with you a couple conclusions related just to the sign of Ahaz. I put new, there we go. First of all, our unbelief does not prevent God from speaking and acting in history. Sometimes we think, oh, if, if we aren't believing, then God's handicapped. No, he, he's powerful. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, you can be part of what God wants to do by being believing and obedient. But if you're not believing and obedient, God can act in history anyway. He can do whatever he wants to do. And the invitation to all of us is be part of what God is doing in the world. And our God is able, and he's not prevented from speaking and acting because we don't have faith or we're not obedient. The second thought is, God is not intimidated to speak to and or correct any human person. He's speaking to Ahaz, the king of Judah, but he also spoke to Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king of uh, Babylon, and told him a dream and gave him a dream that he didn't understand, and Daniel interpreted it for him, and he ended up actually eating uh, grass out in the field like a, a wild ox, right? as far as the fulfillment of the prophecy that he had. I, I was teaching some for my lay missioners this past week and teaching about Constantine. And Constantine the Great, around 312, he was uh, at a time when uh, the persecution against the church was the strongest ever in history, the persecution under Diocletian. Many Christians were put to death, the largest number empire-wide, put to death under his reign. And in the middle of the night, Constantine had a dream, and he saw up in the sky... The words, the, the letters, Cairo, which is an X and an R in Greek. And it's the first two letters of Christ's name, Christ, Cairo. And he saw that, he took that, and he heard the words, in hoc sino vinces, in this sign you will conquer. And so what he did the next morning is he put the sign of the Cairo on all of the uh, sh shields of his soldiers and went out in the battle against Maxentius, who had more powerful forces and he won the battle. And he considers that his conversion. 
And from that moment in time, he, he turned things around for Christians. Christians were made a, a legal religion. He stopped the persecution. And from that point in time, Christianity just flowered uh, because it didn't have that uh, persecution against it. So God spoke to this pagan ruler. Uh, he worshipped Sol Invictus and brought him to faith through a dream. The dual fulfillment is kind of a fascinating thing. And one of the things I want you to realize is this. Ahaz had a vision, had a sign given to him by God. Later on, Matthew has a fulfillment where he's looking back at this and seeing that it's not just a young woman, it's a virgin birth. And how this works, people, the Jews were not looking at this passage in Isaiah saying, oh, the vir- we know Messiah is going to be here when he, he's born of a virgin. They didn't have this checklist out there saying, okay, here's what Messiah has to be. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, check. Born in a manger, check. All this list that they had to check. The way the scripture works in in terms of fulfilled prophecy, there were clear prophecies about a Messiah coming. But as soon as Jesus Christ came on the scene and fulfilled those prophecies, they were able to look back at the Jewish scriptures through Jesus' life and say, aha, he fulfilled that one. Ah, oh, he was born of a birth. That's, that's what Isaiah 7 means. That's what Micah 5 means when it says, Out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, shall he come forth. Ah, that's what it means when it says he comes up out of Egypt. They're looking at the Jewish scriptures, back at the Jewish scriptures through the lens of Jesus Christ's life, and as they look at it, all these passages in the Jewish writings begin to pop. Ah, ah, ah. 300 passages. They begin to pop, and they say, ah. And so Matthew is over and over saying, this happened to fulfill with that, that which is spoken by this prophet and this king and this, this writing. And over and over again, he has that formula that Christ fulfilled Jewish scripture. And that's how it works. Let me move you to the wild dream of Joseph. Context. When you come to this passage in Matthew chapter 1, you have two strong statements about virgin birth. The first one comes right in the midst of a genealogy. I'm not sure if you like to read genealogies, but Matthew's genealogy is probably a fascinating one. It has uh, women women included, which typically is not the case. And when you get to verse 16, you get a very clear statement about the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, The typical genealogy says A A is the father of B, B is the father of C, C is the father of D, and on and on it goes in Adsertium, or whatever, <laughs> whatever the term. Uh, and it goes on and on. But when you get to Jesus, listen to how 16 says, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. It breaks the cycle. And it mentions Joseph because Joseph is the legal lineage line. He's the son of David, through whom Christ has relationship back to David. But Mary is the one of whom Jesus is born, not Joseph. Joseph is his legal father, stepfather, but his biological mother is Mary. And so the break of this is Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. A little bit later on, a couple of verses later, it starts, and now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, and you get the the dream that Joseph has uh, brought to him. Let me cover the dream very quickly in five, five Ds. Joseph has a dilemma. If you're engaged to someone, as it, and they call this a betrothal in Jewish times, Jewish society, if you're engaged to someone and you find out that person is pregnant and you've not been involved with them, that's a problem, right? 
And so Joseph says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. How this was found out, we don't know, but it's probably kind of something kind of hard to hide. And so Mary shows forth that she's, she's pregnant. And Joseph, and all this uh, news brought to him with discouragement and probably uh, frustration, discovers that uh, my, my betrothed sweet Mary is pregnant. She's been unfaithful. So he enters into a del- uh, deliberation. Is he going to shame her, or is he going to just divorce her quietly? And he has that choice. And he has every legitimate right to that choice. Uh, he could have been vengeful. He could have just said, she has shamed me. Very visibly and publicly, she's shamed me, and I'm going to shame her back by making her infidelity public. He could have done that. And so his character begins to shine forth through his actions, that he's a just man, and a merciful man, and a kind man. He just said, I, I can't go through with a marriage, but I'm going to just put her away, you know, put it aside quietly, and I'm going to move on with my life. In the midst of all that, he starts to have a, a wild dream. And I call it wild, not so much because it's a wild, strange dream to have. It's wild because it's such an impossibility, right? I mean, you might have a dream that a virgin has a, a, a gives birth, but to, have, to live with the reality that it happens, that a virgin conceives, I mean, that is wild. And so Joseph has this wild dream, and I put the question mark and exclamation point, which is it? Is it a question or is it, oh, wow, here it is. And uh, the language of this is, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, a wild dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And the meaning of Jesus is, for he will save his people from their sins. Jehovah, Yahweh, saves. So he gets this dream, and it, it, it comes to him as he sleeps. And if anybody had a reason not to believe his dream, not to trust his dream, it would have been Joseph. But an angel had spoken to him. And he wakes up the next morning and he follows through with it. I think he's probably asking the same question that Mary asked. How could this be? How could this be? How could this be? And with all these questions in his mind and heart, he goes ahead and follows through and obeys what the angel uh, reveals. You have the dual fulfillment. Ahaz had a sign, but now you have a miracle following up with that. And then Joseph makes his decisions. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It's just a beautiful picture of a man, humble, with full of questions probably, full of all kinds of confusion, would love to ask the angel a thousand questions to get them answered, but he takes that revelation from God, he listens to God, he believes it, he acts in, in response to God in obedience and moves on with his life. Here's what I want you to take away from Joseph's wild dream. First of all, God speaks most readily to those who have integrity of character and faith. God can speak to pagan kings and rulers. He does. God can speak to unbelievers to draw them to himself. He's doing that today. But he gives most usually his revelation through dreams and through visions in his words, to people who have integrity of character and integrity of faith. You can't picture two, more pe- two people with greater integrity and faith than young Mary and young Joseph. Mary just saying, be it unto me as, as you will. And Joseph just taking this dream and just walking with it and taking Mary to be his wife and 
accepting all the shame and the scorn that came from people who didn't hear the miracle, didn't hear the dream, didn't hear the vision that Mary and Joseph had had. And so God delights in speaking to those who have integrity of character and faith. God's revelation comes to us in the midst of life. If you're just sitting back waiting on God to speak and then you're going to obey, you're going to wait a long time. Joseph is there searching out what he should do. He knows that his, his fiance has gotten pregnant and he's figuring out, what do I do? He's probably going to the scripture to say, what should I do with, with, my, uh, with my fiance? He's probably counseling with the rabbis. He's going about life. He's deliberating. He's, he's struggling with this. And in the midst of life, in the midst of the struggle, God speaks. And I think there are times when we just sometimes say, I, I, I quit, I give up, I'm not going to do anything else until God speaks. Stay steady, stay faithful, stay, stay deliberate, stay purposeful, stay focused. And in the midst of life, God will speak. God will make it clear. God will give you guidance. He may not say everything you want to know, but he'll make enough clear so you just know what the next step is. And you keep walking and walking, and you come to a place where a beautiful thing is fulfilled. God will reveal things to you in the midst of life as you're moving, as you're active, as you're engaged. And lastly, God speaks to reveal the beauty of a listening, believing, and obedient heart. What's more beautiful than Mary? What's more beautiful than Joseph in this, in this passage? Just filled with consternation, filled with struggle, trying to figure out what to do, and God speaks something impossible. He believes it, and he walks it out. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. When you start looking around this room and you think about people in our church and our community who are Christians, they're going through terrible times in their lives and they're just walking it out in beauty. They're just staying faithful. They're just believing God. They're just trusting God. And God speaks. God's given them guidance. He's given them comfort. We can't always see it, but it's, we watch them and we see them and we say, what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing to see a, a woman or a man caring for their, their loved one, their, their spouse of so many years and just walking the days out when they've got some type of debilitating problem or, or illness or whatever. Faithfulness. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. God will speak to us in the midst of life. God will come to us in the midst of difficulty and problems. He may speak to you in a dream. He may tell you something that's just a part of what you want to know, but it's enough to just keep going and being faithful. And God wants you just to be that beautiful life that other people in the world can look at and say, wow, wow, I want to emulate that. I want to be like that. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be listening. Help me to be a beautiful heart for God. Let's pray together. Father, may your blessings be upon us. I pray that the beauty of our Lord would be upon us. I pray that we would be people who listen to you, who hear your voice no matter how it comes to us, whether a dream through Scripture through a vision, through words from a counselor, through a prophecy offered to us. Give us listening and discerning hearts. Give us the ability to trust you with it and give us the obedience to keep walking forward even though we don't see the distance away clearly. Give us that faith and may we shine forth in beauty of testimony of being a servant of the Lord. May you bless each person here, comfort us in all of our troubles and may we be faithful in the midst of them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.